So many people are looking to live happier, more stress-free lives. We provide interviews from mental health experts across various fields because we know finding quality information isn't always easy. Let's find more sanity together. Our resident evolutionary psychology guru is back. Dr. William Sanderson is here to further discuss how our mismatch with the modern world is making us sick. This episode focuses on the individual effects. However, he will be returning to talk about the impact of this mismatch on the societal level, so stay tuned for that episode. Dr. Sanderson is a clinical psychologist with expertise in cognitive behavioral therapy and evolutionary psychology. He is a professor of psychology and director of the PhD program in clinical psychology at Hofstra University. He is a founding fellow of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy and has participated on numerous national committees and was recently the chair of the American Psychological Association Division of Clinical Psychology's Committee on Science and Practice. He has published five books and more than 100 articles and chapters, primarily in the areas of anxiety, depression, personality disorders, and cognitive behavioral therapy. Over the last 20 years, he has taken an extensive interest in using evolutionary theory and research to better understand psychology, human nature, and mental illness. Now on to the show. Hello, and welcome back to Sandy Podcast. We have Bill Sanderson here, our evolutionary and CBT psychology guru back. Um, you might notice this name from a previous ep- episode on evolutionary psychology. And today we're going to be doing a deep dive in a very cool subject, which is called mismatch theory, which we will describe here in a second. So Bill, welcome back on the show. Thank you very much. So why don't you just start us off and just explain to us what mismatch theory is in pretty layman terms so we could all catch up with uh, what you know about this. Sure. Um, Mismatch theory is a theory uh, that's used in evolution to describe when a mismatch occurs between the environment that a species evolved in versus the environment they currently reside in. So uh, best to give an example, um, and I, I use this uh, idea that we, we live in a zoo. If you think of zoo animals, that zoo animals uh, or animals, uh, let's say like a tiger as an example, evolved in a natural environment where it had to capture its own food and, and engage in various survival mechanisms, uh, survival strategies. And in the zoo, they don't need to do that. Right, they're fed, they're taken care of, they don't have any, uh, you know, sort of concerns, uh, and that sounds good, uh, sounds positive. But what may happen is they're not sort of meeting their basic needs by behaving in the way that they did in their original environment. Um, just another example would be is if you took an eagle and put it in Manhattan, or you know, in a big city, you, it wouldn't make sense why it's designed the way it is, uh, because it, it wouldn't be optimal for its survival. So that's what we mean by mismatch. And just to bring it back to humans, the idea is that humans evolved in their present form for hundreds of thousands of years, but really only in the last 150 years or so since the, um, uh, since the technological industrial revolution uh, have things changed substantially. And then even more so the technological revolution, which is really 20 years or so or 30 years 
things have changed even more dramatically. And so the idea is we're mismatched to live in this environment. This is not how we evolved. You know, I think an important principle here is that this mismatch isn't just a discomfort thing or maybe not, uh, you know, feeling quite right or not living, but it, it actually has really big negative impacts having that that mismatch. And so it's not just that there's a mismatch like, oh, okay, it's no, there's a mismatch and there is a problem with that. Yeah, well, I <clears throat> I think that um, what uh, what many people that study mismatch are are believing is that it explains a lot of both uh, physical and mental health issues uh, that, um, and I'm sure we'll get into some of those today. And, uh, and, and so much of um, things like obesity or depression or anxiety, diabetes and so on may be a function of mismatch. And that's a particular challenge for us uh, for a variety of reasons. Okay, so uh, physical health problems that you mentioned there, and um, what mental health problems are we finding from mismatch as well? Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, if we look at almost every mental health issue, let's say if we look at whether it be specific disorders like anxiety disorders or depression to um, uh, sort of more general concepts, like there's a misery index that's calculated every year by the Gallup Association uh, to other types of markers like suicide and substance abuse rates. We see all these things increasing uh, pretty much in a linear fashion and arguably increasing more so even before the pandemic um, uh, in a way that was concerning. So on the one hand, you might argue, well, things are getting better, right? We have, you know, higher standard of living and, and you know, food abundance, and we have all these machines that do a lot of tasks for us, but yet we're seeing these mental health outcomes that are problematic. Um, and the same thing you can argue with physical health. Um, the miracles of science keep us living longer, so, so lifespan is definitely increased for the most part. However, if we look at the health status of the population, especially in industrialized countries, I'll, I'll just sort of focus on the U.S. because that's the data that I'm, that I'm aware of, that we see things like obesity rate is projected to be 50% uh, in the next decade, uh, diabetes rate higher, various types of metabolic disorders, uh, cancer, uh, right? And so medicines and treatments and surgeries allow people to live longer, but their quality of life is uh, has been reduced. So, I, I mean, how do we know that all these problems are coming from mismatch and not from something else? Yeah. Well, uh, so we never know for sure, right? So these are theories that we try to uh, look at the data and see, um, uh, you know, what, what may be the best uh, hypothesis to explain the findings. But let, let's take, I think the easiest one could be obesity and metabolic disorders and mismatch. So what we know is this is true of every species and was true of humans and is true of humans who live today, hunter-gatherers who live today like we lived, all of us, while we were evolving in a, in a, a food-scarce environment, right? So, so there's not a, an abundance of food available and you need to expend significant effort to get it. Imagine hunting with sort of primitive weapons as an example. 
Um, so I, I think the estimate is that humans during that time used about 200% of the calories and energy level compared to the way that we, we exist today. However, we consume way more calories than our ancestors did. So it's sort of simple math, right? If you're taking in more calories, but you're expending much less energy, there's going to be weight gain to levels of um, <clears throat> that create physical problems. That's aside from what we're putting in our body. Forget about that even for a second. That has its own issues in terms of processed or <clears throat> unnatural foods. But that's really the best example of mismatch, right? So you go from food scarcity and use of significant energy to acquire food to food abundance and, you know, I can have Grubhub come into my office and, you know, I just have to get up and open the door to have a high calorie meal. That, that's, and that's a mismatch. Um, and so th therefore we don't, the, the outcome that we see is not unexpected. Okay, so we have, um, you know, I think it'd be cool to like list out some of these mismatches um, that you guys are are talking about. And just, you know, like, you know, I'm on board with this. I, I believe in evolutionary right. psychology as a premise of uh, understanding human behavior and understanding illness, mental illness, physical illness. So we have um, uh, food scarcity versus food surplus, um, needing to conserve energy versus um uh needing to expend it so like now we're back in the day when we had food scarcity um it was better if we conserved our energy when we were in downtime so because there wasn't enough food to keep us fueled so save the fuel versus now when we have so much fuel right uh, it would probably be better if we were burning burning more so so we also have that so th that's like nutrition that's fitness what else are you guys talking about as major uh mismatches that are out there yeah well, I guess uh, maybe we want to pivot to mental health here, which uh, you know perhaps could be more of our focus. And I, um, I, th I think uh, one interesting thing to look at that is particularly significant in this area is social comparison. And um, so let me let me lay this out a bit. Um, humans are a social species, and uh, a socially competitive species, a hierarchical species, and we've always been that way. Um, so if you will, like we care a lot about our competition within our group, uh, you know, our, our ability to be competitive, desirable, and, and so on. Uh, so throughout evolution, humans lived in relatively small groups, maybe 100, you know, a little more, a little less, but that would be the idea. And so you there wasn't too much social comparison going on. It's just sort of in a, in a small group. Now, let's look at something like social media <clears throat> as an example. Well, what happens on social media is people could literally, you know, compare themselves. They're not doing this deliberately, right? But this is the mechanism that's being triggered. They could compare themselves to, you know, thousands of people or hundreds of people or millions of people, depending on, you know, how much, uh, how involved they are in, you know, I'm familiar with Twitter, less familiar with some of these other things other than for my own research purposes, but Facebook and, uh, you know, Instagram and Snapchat and so on. But basically, these are all human advertisements, right? People are showing like, look, I'm at this fancy restaurant or I'm on this great vacation or I just got this new job. I mean, even to some degree, things like LinkedIn and Google Scholar and ResearchGate. 
what it's done is it's quantified our, you know, in something like Google Scholar or ResearchGate in my own field has sort of quantified like what's our score of, of you know, academic success, if you will. And you literally could just rank people based on that score. Uh, and that's probably not helpful because most people aren't going to be where they want to be, right? There's only, and everyone wants to be towards the top or mm -hmm. on top. And so my argument in this area is that what's happened with these various forms of social media, including things like LinkedIn and ResearchGate, and then, of course, the traditional ones, is that it's constantly triggering our social comparison mechanism. Once again, it's not deliberate. We just can't help but to do it. And it could it's even an be non-conscious, uh, if you want, yeah. or automatic. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you can't help feeling bad if you are on a lousy vacation, if someone's on a good vacation, or if you're not on vacation and someone's on a good vacation. And the idea is we're bombarded. And, and this is another important concept. Uh, we call these supernormal stimuli. So social comparison and getting information about people is a normal part of the human psyche. However, Twitter and once again, Instagram, Snapchat, and so on are super normal stimuli. We weren't built to be getting feedback continuously from many, many people, right? So it's just it's um, just sort of similar to the food issue, right? It's like we have an abundance of food, we have an abundance of social comparison, and that's making us sick. And there's some pretty good research on this showing that. Uh, that's not necessarily even evolutionary based. I'm just sort of putting in the context of what our brain was built for and think of the level of social comparison that we can engage in in the current environment. And, and let's really break down super normal stimuli uh, so so people could follow along here. So just think about it, it's super normal, above normal. So that could be an intensity, right? I would imagine. And it's also a frequency as well. So we're getting- Could be too, both, yep. too, Yeah, so we're getting too high of a dose for too much yeah. of the time. So- you think about um, ancient humans, they probably were in a smaller village. The amount of people to compare themselves was probably smaller, which you mentioned. But another thing I'm thinking is the amount of discrepancy or how different people you were seeing was probably smaller. Right now, we see everything all the way up to billionaires right? and everything. So we're seeing a lot of people that, that have a lot more than the average Joe, and we're seeing it a lot. Absolutely. So I would imagine it's not just frequency, but it's also the discrepancy, how big the changes that we're seeing. Right. I'm also thinking, you know, I think this is a big thing on body image issues as well, where people, uh, men and women are looking on social media and they're seeing um, models that are airbrushed and, and uh, have these really high physical standards that are hard to obtain by the vast majority of the population. But when you're seeing it over and over and over and over again, it starts to skew your perception and your expectations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that that's a good example. And just because this is such an important concept, the supernormal stimuli, I'll give a very concrete example. But so, if we look at our evolved taste preference, we prefer you know high fat, high sugar foods, and that's uh, something that is an adaptation, meaning those who preferred those things were more likely to survive. You know, versus, I could speak to that personally. Yeah, I right. really like high fat. Right. It, is, it, is, it is a good one to keep it, uh, right? It's uh, um, really one that hits home for most people. Yeah, ice cream is right? my- Because uh, I think the idea also is, I just sort of put this into context, but have you ever eaten something that you didn't want to eat or more of it than you 
wanted to, and that tells you how powerful these stimuli are. But if, if we just go to that idea for a second, so, okay, so preference for fat, preference for sugar is adaptive. We know that that's the case. It guides us to get enough calories or at least eat more when there's food abundance to be able to tolerate food scarcity. And it even indirects us to get the right nutrients to some degree. Okay. Now take, I'll bring up my own weakness is Haagen-Dazs ice cream. Yeah, ice cream. That's my thing too. uh, So this is, there's nothing like that that exists in the natural environment. There's nothing so sweet or so fatty per, um, you know, per, per ounce, so to speak. And so the fact is, uh, you know, that you can get into looking at more uh, proximate causation. Nothing creates quite the dopamine or pleasure response as, you know, that exists in the natural environment. You can have the best apple that exists. It's not going to taste as good not as Haagen-Dazs, right? It's designed. Nope. And so that's a perfect example of a supernormal stimuli. So no surprise what we see people, you know, just in the general population, certainly people that deal with eating disorders see this, is we'll see people coming in and saying, look, I can't stop eating ice cream or cookies or French fries or potato chips, right? These are all supernormal stimuli. But we don't see people coming in and saying, I can't stop eating apples, as an example, or, you know, cherries or something like that. Or broccoli. Broccoli, right? And um, and and so that that has enormous implications. And, and I would argue that just like that, to go back to social comparison, we're built to make social comparison. It's important. We have to know where we stand. And we want to improve in some level. We want to be more competitive, right? That's that's our evolutionary drive. But, but why? For survive, I mean, it's to survive. That well, um, I, I think the, re- the reason is part of it's survival, but I think it's part of what you uh, brought up that you were interested in in the first podcast we did, which is the concept. So if you will, there's survival selection. Mm-hmm. And I won't get into too, I know we're sort of less time today, but there's survival selection. So things that help you survive. So certainly like anxiety is a survival selection mechanism. If you're up on a cliff and you become frightened and you sort of hunker down, that's good. You're less likely to fall off. That kind of height phobia exists in, in most humans, you know, from birth with the mm-hmm. visual cliff experiments. But, um, um, but with regard to um, other types of social comparison, uh, with regard to social comparison, this is probably more what we call a sexual selection mechanism. And so sexual selection is the idea that everyone is not equally desirable, right? We have a very strong mating instinct, obviously. Evolution would be out of business if mm-hmm. mating reproduction did not occur, but uh, once again, everyone's not equally desirable. There's something uh, in the f- people that research this called the mating market, so to speak. And uh, so as a result, we want to be, uh, we want to display uh, the attributes that members of the opposite sex are interested in. And for males and females, uh, those are different things. And, and we won't get into those. Some are similar, but, but many are different. And we don't have to get into those today. But certainly appearance is a big one, both for males and females. Like appearance matters. And so that's one that you mentioned. So it's no surprise that, you know, a significant portion of the population, I forget the actual percent, but it's only slightly higher, interestingly, in females than males are dissatisfied with their appearance, with their body, uh, and so on. Uh, So my argument would be that the mismatch is we have this mechanism to look 
you know, the best, you know, try to look better than as many people in our group as possible. But it's one thing when you're competing with, you know, 40 other guys. But -hmm. if you're competing with millions of images of the most attractive people, then you can't help but to become, uh, to come away from that feeling, you know, kind of lower status or um, uh, less desirable in some way. Okay. Just the way the mechanism works. Yeah, and and that makes that makes total sense. So we have social comparison here, which uh, could be getting us more depressed, um, more anxious. On the mental health side, what other mismatches are going on that um, that are bringing us down? Yeah. So uh, I, I would say that the social comparison one is particularly interesting for depression, uh, because think about the importance of self esteem. And, you know, you could argue that's a very generic concept, but I would argue that social comparison lowers most people's mm-hmm. self-esteem, right? And and that could increase the, the likelihood of, of depression uh, because the environment uh, is so difficult to compete in, at, le- at least the images of the environment. Um, pr- probably the other, just to g- think about the increase in anxiety, and I think this is uh, di- different in a way which has to do more with, so l- let's think once again, the function of anxiety is to uh, help us deal with dangers in our environment. And uh, that it literally sort of like most emotions or like all emotions, their motives, they sort of cause you to pay attention and do something. So once again, you see that tiger and you don't care what else is going on, you're going to try to escape from that tiger. And you're either going to escape or you're not, right? And if you do, uh-huh. you get relief. And if you don't, you're no longer in the gene pool. But um, what we're seeing is, if you think about it, and once again, a lot of this is technological advance, we are bombarded by threat information, right? Dangers uh, that are largely irrelevant to us. Uh, so, you know, I mean, the fact is if, Someone, and I don't mean to sound uh, cold here, but, you know, if someone's sort of pushed on the tracks in Manhattan, it's not really that relevant to me living 50 miles away Um, and maybe relevant to people in Manhattan or people using the subway. But it can't help you to feel like the world is a more dangerous place or more specifically, like your environment is a more dangerous place. And so, uh, once again, these mechanisms were meant to be triggered only when they were relevant. Right, so something happened in the environment that was dangerous, and people responded, and that response was adaptive. We know that anxiety was adaptive; that's why it exists. Those who were not anxious didn't make it, um, and that's true of almost all species have a anxiety-like response. Um, so, if you think of how much information we get, threat information that can be irrelevant and I'll go back to your notion of not just that we get it, but the amount that we get. I'm just going to give a, a recent example was the the building collapse in Florida. In Florida. So once again, that's uh, there were articles like, should you live in a high rise? Now let's, let's think about it statistically for a second. I mean, that was one high rise. And once again, not, it's a horrible catastrophic event, but it was one high rise in the whole country. Well, let's just stick with the country. That collapse. Well, okay, that's worth thinking about, and you know, maybe doing some, you know, having people check things out better or whatever it may be. I certainly wouldn't put that as a risk to worry about at this point. However, those articles actually had people thinking about maybe I should move out of my high rise. Maybe I shouldn't. I, apparently, the real estate market of high rises changed a bit 
after that. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Especially in especially in Florida. Uh, now it, these things are probably short lived. Are usually short lived. Like when a plane crashes, there's some decrease in flying. But uh, but the main point is, um, okay, it's it, you know you could argue, all right, it's a story, so we should hear about it. But literally, like it was every day on the front page of the newspaper. I'm not a television consumer, but from what I understand, same thing. They were like, you know, yep. CNN camped out there and, you know, nonstop. And the so our mechanism wasn't built, our fear mechanism wasn't built for that level of information. So even though it's irrelevant, it can't help but to make people feel more anxious in general, uh, you know, sort of like that there's more danger out there uh, than there really is that's relevant to us. And that's just one example, right? So you could take, you know, there's all types of things. There's almost always some story like that going on, uh, a mass shooting, uh, you know, uh, there, you know, fires, accidents. Um, uh, so, so that, I think that that may explain some of the increases in anxiety rates as we just hear so much threat information that we weren't built for. And uh, like that mechanism is just always on, o- always being triggered. Uh, no, very. When you mentioned um, threat information, that building popped into my head immediately, even before yeah. <laughs> before you said it, because uh, that was like the last big big thing that that I was seeing um, mm-hmm. on the news. So, so you you yourself have this knowing this information have decided to cut out most of social media and uh, news media use. Am I yes. am I correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. All right. And you know, two, two things. Um, so, uh, you probably don't achieve many sponsors by, <laughs> by you know, by, by taking this position. But I think it, I think um, well, just sort of come back to to something which is uh, that um, if you think of the once again the ancestral what we call the ancestral environment, people had threats, but they were in their environment. So they were relevant. Like if some kind yeah, of yeah. animal came and you sort of bite somebody's hand off, you knew that that should be something uh, to be concerned about. If you were in China, you weren't hearing about like frostbite in Siberia or right, you know, right. Some, something like that. Exactly. And so, but going back to human nature, we are built to want to know this information, right? Mm-hmm. Makes, so those that didn't care about threats in their environment probably didn't survive, right? So you wanted that information. So if you will, uh, the idea is that these teasers are often used by the media, you know, tune in at 11 to find out what in your environment is probably killing you or making you sick or something like that. Yeah. So we're built to want to know it. So we can't help but to, you know, at some level, human nature. So my argument is the only thing that we can do about it then is to try to turn it off, right? I mean, in, in, in behavioral research, we call this stimulus control which is, you know, if you don't want to eat the cookies, don't buy them and bring them in the house because that probably is going to mm-hmm. uh, exert uh, undue influence on any type of self-control mechanism that you have. And, you know, I mean, so- social media is an easy one to pick on now because it's being picked on a lot. But, uh, but I mean, I've been sort of focused on this for much longer than than recently. And I think the idea is, is that, it is something you can control, right? You could just turn it off. And uh, I, I heard a, a podcast recently where someone, I can't remember who it was, was making the point that 20 or 30 years from now, we're going to look back at social media the way we look at cigarettes right now and say like, well, what were we doing? 
You know, I mean, this was really just derailing our mental health, our social relations, and so on. Something we had full control over, like smoking a cigarette, in a sense. But we did it anyway, you know. Yep. And uh, and it, it came with a promise of something good. And there could be good aspects to it. Overall, I would argue that it has a negative effect. And um, uh, and, and and that was the analogy. I thought that was an interesting um, analogy. Yeah. But so remember, that- we can't. We know that, but we can't turn it off. Just because we're consumed to want to, fi- you know, find out information about others, interact with others, social comparison. Mm-hmm. So you can reduce the stimulus, but you can't shut off social comparison. Right. Um, just you know that that's a game I actually like to play. What would the future laugh at us doing? Oh, <laughs> at current times, is yeah. it a funny thing to actually think about? Like, what what would people in the future look back? Because we look back and we say, oh, I can't believe I can't believe they did that. Yeah. And then we're we're doing the same thing. We yeah, just don't. This will don't be one. I mean, this is clearly <laughs> one of them. Just just because the data are now so strong at how bad it is for people, and uh, so this will definitely be. And once again, there's not there's um, th- there's a, there's no reason. You know, there's a lot of focus on like it should be regulated, censured, and so on. I mean, people could just not have it on, right? You yeah, don't, yeah, you don't yeah. need you it. Sh- yeah. I mean, I think I believe uh, the one of the founders. Uh, uh, of social media actually doesn't use social media. <laughs> Interesting. Right. Um, oh, and, and I, I don't want to get too far down this because I want to ask you about um, some other things, but I part of this misery index too probably be that our jobs aren't really aligned with jobs that we used to do and they don't give us as much um, intrinsic value or, or worth. Like back in the day, farming was very meaningful because if you didn't farm, you didn't eat. And your kids didn't eat. So, of course, you found that um, very important. So, um, wh- where do you see, I mean, anything to add to that, I guess, basically? Yeah. Well, uh, what what I would say is, so there's definitely an element of that, which at some level, you know, sort of the more uh, uh, divorced from producing something meaningful, the jobs tend to be less satisfying, right? So, it's almost like an assembly line workers or the worst scenario because they're just sort of putting a cog in, into a into a product, but they're, they're versus maybe someone that would build a whole car or or more significant part and see the product at the end and feel that they. So there's lots of research on that idea in ind- industrial organizational psychology. Mm-hmm. But I think what I would what I would add in, in terms of work is, I mean, think about how much we work. And there's there's some interest in this now, right? So that people, I mean, there ha- most people have their needs met. Certainly, anybody middle class and above have their needs met. But yet, people are working like more and more hours, you know, than ever before. And, and during the pandemic, apparently, like people were working more hours. They yeah. weren't commuting and so on. And I mean, at some level, uh, uh, we didn't talk about signaling theory, but the idea of like how many hours you work, how busy you are, could even be seen as a sign of status. To some degree, right? That you're, you know, oh, I'm working all the time, or, and I would so so that creates a certain amount of stress that could be involved in 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 misery, both in terms of the stress of working, but also the absence then of doing things that are more pleasurable that might mm-hmm. offset some of those stress reactions. But um, I think that as a result, I'll, I'll sort of come back to social comparison for a second. I mean, people are ju- and this and social comparison. And, and evolution could be seen as driving materialism. If we're o- going back to the point I mentioned earlier, if we're always competing, we always have to have more, right? The better car, the bigger house, the 
you know, the nicer clothes, like whatever you define as that. And um, that it's not clear or it's, I think it's fairly clear that those things don't really bring that much satisfaction and the stress for most people associated with accumulating those things has more of a negative impact. But once again, like we know this at some level, but we can't seem to stop it. And and then I'll go back to social media. So social media keeps promoting, right? The, the reason social media makes so much sense, right? Nobody pays for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But, but advertisers know it's incredibly powerful on influencing people's perspective. Uh, so, so you're saying yeah. my dream of owning a yacht and, uh, is not right. gonna, is not gonna do it for me. Yeah. Well, it, it'll make you dissatisfied. Uh, right. Cause <laughs> you, you, you always look at that. But, uh, so I, I think that would be the, you know, the importance of work is, uh, that once again, it's sort of become, uh, a, um, a mechanism to try to compete with others, but it's a bottomless pit, if, if you will, in in terms of it, it could just never end. And I, I, you know, I think recently I made this point, and I don't know any of these people, but I mean, look, billionaires, you know, almost trillionaires, some of them, um, are literally like shooting themselves into space. Maybe that, I mean, think about that. Yeah. You know, you know, I don't remember the cost involved in doing that, but it's enormous. Mm-hmm. Now, think about why, okay, they could hap- just happen to be really interested in space. Or maybe when you get at that level, that's how you keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. That, uh, you know, you have a space company and it shoots you up into space and, you know, maybe it's a, now, then it's going to be Mars or something like that. They're already mm-hmm. talking about it. I think that's a really interesting example, just how far this mechanism could go. Mm-hmm. Right. I think most of us are not dreaming about, you know, going into space. But if you've done, you know, if you have everything and you want to be the top, uh, that even, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars may not be enough in that arms race. So that's sort of my point yeah. is it's unrelenting. It, do- mm-hmm. it doesn't really it doesn't ever stop. You see yeah. that Bezos rocket? Man, that looks cool. I, yeah. I, need, to, I need to get a better <laughs> rocket, <laughs> a better rocket than him. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up on this episode and, um, we're going to be having, having another episode, which I will talk about to stay tuned on. Um, but some more physical factors here that I think are important for mismatch is how we're using light. Um, maybe how sterile our food is, um, um, compared to the past. Um, and anything else that, uh, that comes to mind? Um, yeah, well, I think, um, if you go back to the we live in a zoo idea, what I would be trying to think about is how learning more <clears throat> about how humans evolved, what environment they evolved in, and trying to live more like that, so to speak, meaning that doesn't have to be everything or unrealistic things. But certainly if you look at the one you didn't, you mentioned light, which is important, food is important, mm-hmm. exercise, or l- let's not Movement. even call it exercise, activity, right? So- I think people have this idea like you need exercise, like you need to be, you know, running five miles or weightlifting or whatever. But the health benefits that have been shown are really just about people moving. And uh, you, you know, Humans you, I think you mentioned this early, but we're just prone to conserve energy. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting article that anybody could Google it. It's in the New York Times in the last month that showed that humans resemble bears in the way they conserve their activity. So even a bear will take the shortest distance <laughs> between mm. two points. And humans do that, right? You would see people scouring for a parking lot to be in, in a parking lot for a parking spot to be 10 feet closer, right? And, and you know, th- this is not people that are incapable of walking 10, yep. 10 more feet. And they'll, and they'll waste 30 minutes. Waste 30 minutes doing, doing it. it. 
So, um, so I, th I think these are examples of, and so the activity level, right? So sitting in front of computers or not having to even like go food shopping, having your food delivered, right? I mean, think how far removed that is from acquiring food. So I would put activity and sleep in there as, as other factors. People are trying to get by with less sleep so they could work more or do more. I mean, those things are, pro are not, not probably, there's data that shows that amount of sunlight, vitamin D in particular that comes from that. Uh, the diet that people eat is a hot topic right now, especially overly sterilized food and how it affects the, the gut bacteria and how those are mood regulation. They, they have an impact on mood regulation. Uh, and then activity, I don't even want to call it exercise, just activity, moving around, uh, and um, sleep. So there's lots of evidence that those things really matter, not just in our physical health, people knew that, but in our mental health as well. Yeah, uh, um, <clears throat> and when you think about light, our light was the sun originally. Yep. So we had light when the sun was out and we had very little light or dim light when the sun was gone right. and our internal clocks are really based on that particularly uh, bright morning light really anchors our clock and our wake up time, having mm -hmm. a wake up time. But if you think about it, when the sun rose up, it's not like people had houses with blackout curtains or something. Yeah, know, super dark. I mean, maybe maybe they did, but you know, the light would wake you up and and you would and you would be um, anchored. And so, artificial light, you know, at night uh, in interferes with that. Um, things are interfering with sleep. And then you had mentioned, I think a lot of people. I think you're talking about the microbiome or the gut biome, which is a hot topic when it comes to um, uh, eating food. Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, yeah. if you, if you look at COVID just as a challenge, right, Ch a challenge to humans, I mean, it really is uh, testing our uh, you know adaptive ability. That no surprise, uh, these co you know, what they call comorbidities, like being less healthy, uh, are factors that led to increased likelihood of dying um, from COVID. And there's some interesting studies even on food sources and places that ate. Uh, more natural uh, foods. Um, I'm trying to think what the word for these foods is. It's escaping me now, but things like foods? kimchi and uh, oh, fermented, fermented, fermented foods, right? And those places, the, sort of countries that are not as advanced as the U.S., in those areas where they were eating highly fermented foods, they were much uh, dying at a much lower level. So uh, you know, so there is something to these, if you will, like dirty foods that seems to be important for us uh, in terms of our ability to even fend off bacteria and viruses. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to be having a podcast on fitness and nutrition, but a little spoiler, there was two small studies, um, I believe in Australia, I think one was Australia and New Zealand, um, at the looking at the Mediterranean diet, and they um, had people with depression, moderate, uh, on average, moderate depression on a, on a scale on one, severe in the other. And it was the Mediterranean diet versus a control group, which was social support. And those on the Mediterranean diet, if I remember my numbers correctly, one study, the moderate with moderate depression, the med diet had 38% more improvement in depression scores, 68% mm. with the one where the people were more severely depressed. And we know the higher you are um, in some sort of pathology with treatment, you tend to have bigger gains, which would make sense here. So... Um, going to that point that what we eat is not just a physical benefit and, you know, there's only two studies, but potentially, and I would, I would argue probably likely it has a big impact on our, um, 
mental health as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, that, that, that's an interesting one. And I think it will be, it's, it's another area that's important. And I, I think that just to sort of uh, end at this, you and I had talked about a little bit earlier, is that the question is, many of these things we know already, the, these are just like good health behaviors. And yet people have trouble, you know, because supernormal stimuli, they have trouble regulating it. Uh, and uh, so I, what I'm hoping is if people sort of try to put this in an evolutionary context and really appreciate the idea that this is not just about good health, it's literally like doing things that we're not, that we're really not built for that's harming us. You know, it's almost like you wouldn't pull, I don't think you'd pull your car into the gas station and because gas is going up, say, you know, I'm going to put half water and half gas in the tank. And the reason you wouldn't do that is because you know it's going to ruin the engine. It's not built mm. for that. And, but that's kind of what we do. Uh, you know, with our bodies and our mind. And we do things that it's not built for and underappreciate that. Uh, and maybe this is human exceptionalism, like underappreciate that that's going to hurt us whether we know it or not um, for, for, for good reasons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, I actually think that's a very good uh, summary point, <laughs> uh, you know, the, on, on, the, on this episode. So um Stay tuned for our next episode. So in this episode, we're focusing on mismatch and more of the individual basis, what's making us individually less healthy, individually less mentally healthy. Our next episode, we're going to talk about more societal uh, phenomenon, what happens at a societal level uh, with mismatch theory and some of the complications that we have here. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, Bill, thanks so much for coming back on and we'll be chatting soon. You're welcome. Thanks. I enjoy it. <laughs>